right? So we had a really good conversation debate format about this idea of annihilationism versus ECT. And I think we're going to continue that in a more open format here. So instead of having structured time limits and sections and people talking and giving very structured points, we're just going to kind of be more freeform here. So uh, any ideas, comments that y'all want to bring up, caveats that you didn't get to introduce earlier, or just continuations of discussions? I know oh, I have I, at least three points that I took notes on, but most of the time I, don't I, know if I want to. Attention. I don't know if I want to comment specifically on the like there are things that i missed there are things that i missed i think we already knew that i already mentioned that to you guys a couple times but uh there i just as far as the the actual debate went i walked away from that feeling like i didn't did not do a very good job but maybe it's just because brad did such an excellent job i I mean i appreciate what do you expect yeah Yeah, (laughs) i i thought you did great i thought that because of the format, a lot of my points were rushed. I thought perhaps I tried to jam in more than I should have. But at the same time, I, d- I feel fine about how it went for me, and I feel fine about how it went for you as well. I think no, we both did, yeah. did well. I think we right. did as well as we could, yeah. I think there was more that you... I could definitely tell there was more that you... There were times where I could see you intentionally not addressing certain issues. For example, um, you didn't cover any of the linguistic arguments in your opening, and I was like, I wonder if I could fish him over to, to talk about the linguistic arguments. No, I, I like the linguistic arguments, but I didn't think they were that... Well, there was one that I touched on. So yeah. for the idea they, of they really, punishment yeah. and destruction, I, I poked at it, but didn't go into detail. Most of them, though, I feel like they're arguments that ECT would raise, and then I would address in a rebuttal rather than something that would be raised right. in the first, first place by my side. Right. No, I agree with that. I think the linguistic arguments really, as much as that's where a lot of the meat comes from in the argument... Ultimately, people are like, well, if you look at the original language, if you look at the original language, there's a reason it's translated in a way that we still interpret it both ways. Like it's still, and, and it was even in the early church, it was interpreted multiple ways. And so even then, right. it's not it's not going to be a smoking gun in that argument. Uh, how helpful I, it is for me to look at the original language, because since I don't speak it, I tend to just be looking just at more people's translations of it, which, you know, more is better. Variety gives you more perspectives, and that lets you get closer to the truth. But I'm definitely not somebody who can just look at the original Greek and be like, oh, man, the NIV really translated it wrong here. I generally would agree with that, but there are some cases where you can get a general perspective by looking at a concordance and looking at sort of the semantic range of a word where it's used in a bunch of different ways and get an idea for like, given this context, given the semantic range we've seen, what seems reasonable. And yeah, you're not going to do as good of a job as someone who actually speaks the language, but you can at least get some idea as to whether there might be a uh, denominational uh motivation behind the translation and that happens quite a bit and i think honestly though when you get into it this is where like the hermeneutics aspect comes into it is that when you get into the linguistic arguments you have to look at the context of the language more than anything because while the word may like that's the best way we can translate that word without the culture attached to it and yeah, that's the part sure. that is missing. And when you try to translate those things, and in this case, you know, we're trying to understand what was the culture around these things to best make the argument. I think you, Brad, you did an excellent job of trying to get to that point. That's where I was trying to go with it as well, trying to make the best argument for what was the culture of that time and how would they have translated this rather than trying to say, well, this is what the word is and this is, Absolutely. you know, you know, we, we can't make that determination really. Um, even if we want to lay some groundwork. And I you know, I brought up the linguistic arguments because I do think there's something to be said about them. I think they have to be addressed. Of course. I don't think that, like I said, I don't think they're going to ever, ever be a smoking gun in that, in that case. One thing I want to mention to that point is there's a, a very common misconception on this debate. So a lot of times pro- proponents of the traditional view will really spend a lot of time on Ionios and Ionion because you know they say it means eternal and they feel that annihilationists are saying it doesn't mean eternal which actually for most annihilationists isn't the case. We typically agree with you that it means eternal. We just disagree as as to whether you're talking about the event itself or the results of the event. We agree it's a forever thing. It's just, are you forever dead or are you forever undergoing the punishing process? Um, Whereas universalists, there they actually do strongly debate the meaning of the word because neither one of those works for them. I do have a question on that topic. Um, Brad, there there was something you brought up and it came across 
as a bit of a straw man argument to me. So I was hoping you Oof. could give some more clarity to this. I, I know, ter sure terrible thing. accusation here. So you mentioned this idea of, okay, well, Jesus saved once, but we're eternally saved. God judged once, but we're eternally judged. So if God pu punishes once and eternally punished, like you made this distinct, you, it seemed like you were saying there that we can't be living, we can't, there can't be eternal conscious torment because that would be punishing eternally rather than punished once and it being an eternal state of punishment. But to me, that was not my intended argument. Okay, I see what you're saying and I see why it came off that way, but no, that was not my intended yeah, argument. Because I think that's what Jordan was trying to get at was that if God said, if the way of reality works is simply that the punishment that God hands out is this eternal conscious torment that that still does fit the bottle of god punishes once but they are eternally punished so my greater yeah. point was that if you uh, if if i'm correct correct about the way that ionios works with a verbal noun like eternal redemption for example is the cleanest example from hebrews 9 um if i'm correct about that which other people who know a lot more about greek have made that argument um then it's unclear from the term eternal punishment which one of the two is correct. Whereas okay, so ECT making... tries to use it as a slam dunk. It, it, to me, it's it's kind of a nothing. It could go okay, either so way. You were There's... making the argument that it could go either way, not that it goes specifically towards what you were saying. Yes, having said that, okay. you, know, you probably noticed how Russia was during the debate. I did know that that was a confusion that could happen there, and I just didn't take the time to okay, explain that's, it. That's why I wanted to bring it up I, now, just to make sure I, I felt yeah. that the time would be better used elsewhere, but you're right, and I'm glad we got the time, chance to clarify it here. Yeah, and then that's why we're doing this, right? Um, yeah, I, I do feel like, like you said, Rush, this particular topic, I mean, we could have had an hour for each of the sections, and I still don't think we would have really given this the all the well, meat that it deserves. It might be um, no, but also nobody... <laughs> No, only if we're saved. Um, nobody, uh, <laughs> nobody would have uh, would have watched it if we spent eight hours on the debate. Though, that's why I think it's oh, yeah. valuable. To, I don't know uh, what podcast no, I, watch, I, but <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. Now, I think I do think that this the subject matter was so deep, and I think I think we both presented the surface level arguments fairly well. And I think that you know, obviously, if you and I have had these discussions fairly in depth and we continue to have those conversations in depth i think that that's the kind of the point um i am interested though okay so this is a point that i noticed when i was um kind of coming through the debate i got into the philosophical arguments and i noticed that you you were like mm, no let's not have that conversation <laughs> well okay before you continue can i just make one point about that absolutely yeah so the way i think about philosophy is i think that you know Scripture and exegesis should be step one of us trying to understand things. After that, I would say theology, this is a common phrase, I'm not the first to say it, but theology is the handmaiden of exegesis, right? And so you can use your theology in some cases to lightly inform the exegesis, but the exegesis is still the thing that's driving the thought process. On the next step down the totem pole, philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. And so, like, it's sort of two steps removed from the thing that's most relevant to me. And so that's why I was like, let's not talk about it. Because in my mind, it would be, given the compressed nature of the debate, it's putting something that to me seems very low in importance on the same level of something that's very high in importance when we don't have enough time to cover everything. That's um, but that's not, to, that's not to say it doesn't matter. Philosophy does have a place. I think just more to the point that I, I'm pulling from the perspective that what we agreed upon, like, let's take the rational steps. What did we agree upon as far as the nature of God and, and these things? And you, you made, this is interesting to me because you made the point. I haven't made the argument that, you know, what you're saying philosophically is untrue or any of the, you know, you said I haven't addressed that philosophical argument and you hadn't, but what was fun though, was at the end, because I said, do you believe originally, like, do you believe that if it's unjust for a, a God to punish do you believe this because it's unjust for God to punish people for finite sins um, with eternal torment? And you said, that's not really the point that I was making, but then in your closing, you actually made that exact point. And well, so, no. I, so I, I tried to clarify it in cross. What I said mm -hmm. was that, no, I'm not saying that God can't do what he wants, but I am saying that if someone communicates to me, that something that sounds like it's outside of God's nature is something that God's going to do it's going to be something that makes me look a second time, right? So it, an argument, let's picture that as a wall. 
a brick in the wall can be, this sounds like it's outside of God's nature. And so that can be something that you look at and go, this would be counterintuitive. This would be surprising. If you told me God is going to murder all of the babies for no reason other than he feels like it, I wouldn't tell you God has no right to do that. But I would tell you, I think you're probably wrong because that conflicts with my understanding of him in scripture. That is the argument I was trying to make in closing, not that God's not allowed to do it. And if I'm wrong, then, you know, I'm going to shake my fist at God. No, if I'm wrong, it means I misunderstood the nature of justice. But um, it it still seems counterintuitive to me. Speaking of justice, what do y'all think about the difference? Maybe this is completely outside of the breadth of this, and if so, we can skip this idea. But what do you think about the idea of our american justice system being one of punitive justice where the judge makes a ruling and then somebody is punished according to the crime they've committed probably more than the crime they've committed as a way of deterring that from happening again or by other people whereas in the jewish system mishpat justice was more about a restorative justice and they were trying to restore the world back to the way it should be and restore their community to the way it should be and that was what they viewed as justice rather than punishment itself all the time like, yes, well, not, obviously there were things that were punishment, but that's not justice mishpat in of itself. Speaking of philosophy that can wander into some funny places, <laughs> this is wandering into the universalist argument. It does. I, I recognize <laughs> that it wanders into the universalist argument, but I'm curious how y'all think that plays into it, or if you've really thought about it. I do think that our we have a very interesting sense of justice, right? And I think it comes from, and you'll, you'll probably hear me say this time and time again, and I, I'm kind of obsessed with John Walton's material, the view on material ontology, but I kind of take it a few steps further, um, which is that our current Western society does have this view of material uh, gain or material loss. And so everything has, justice has to be, somehow measurable if that makes sense like there yes. has to be some material metric this many years this much money exactly this much whatever and so always equating it to dollar i mean you are always equating it to dollars more or less right. if you're in a civil case and yeah. in, in talking you know and here's brad a lawyer who understands this is this is the nature of his job is how do we determine the material value of something that is immaterial and that is literally brad's job so you know there's i'm sure he'll have plenty to say about this but in our justice system, that's how it's framed. And so the difficulty in this is that when we look at God's justice and we look at it from a scriptural perspective, uh, God isn't going to put a material price on things in the same way. Um, and I think Brad, sorry, not Brad, Jace, to your point, there was a very different view of justice. What was the purpose of that justice? Um, in this case, you, I think you are right that there was a certain sense in which a restorative justice played a part in this because while those who are cast into the lake of fire are not in, in ECT and in the annihilationist perspective are not restored, um, justice is and peace is and righteousness is and purity is and holiness is. And so in that sense, I do think that the original sense of justice aligns with that. Um, And I do think that if we are to, if we're going to look at this and make the arguments about God's justice, uh, that we look at it from the original perspective. And that's kind of where I was trying to get to was, I don't think we can look at the conversation about God's justice and how he responds to people and how he judges people based on the actions that those people took, but rather more specifically what it was taken against, which is, or what it's measured against, which is the holiness of God. And so and that becomes a very different conversation. If it's just about, well, how, how evil was I in the grand scheme of how great God is? Well, no, I wasn't like it. It was minuscule by comparison to that, but how deeply did I violate God's holiness by participating in that, that's a very different conversation, right? As soon as we talk about how deeply did I violate God's holiness versus how bad was my sin, very different conversation because the sin is not bad because I'm not, not necessarily just because I'm evil, but because God is holy. Right. I I think though, if I'm understanding correctly, um, and actually I'll just ask you, are, are you making the point here that, if, it, if annihilationism were true, that that punishment would be in some way insufficient and that eternal torment is in some way more close to sufficient or fully sufficient. 
that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is simply that when we talk about justice, we need to keep in mind that our view of justice is certainly not the full view of justice that they had whenever this was written. And so yes. we should try and keep that in mind whenever we're framing these arguments and discussions. I, I'm also going to mention, I'm not trying to say that if God did use annihilationism that he would be wrong or unjust in some way. That's that's wise, but yeah. <laughs> I, I am saying that it's well within God's rights to measure us against his holiness rather than his that rather than our that rather than our evil or our, our wrongdoing. Sure, um, but it's still I, it's sorry, um, go ahead. The where I'm coming from in this is that if the metric of our salvation and our justification comes not from us, but from God's holiness, his justice, his sanctification, then how much more would our punishment come not from ourselves, but rather from God, based on God's sanctification, his justice, his holiness? Right. It it still sounded to me like you were sort of assuming that if it were measured against just the nature of the crime against a person, that that would be a lesser punishment, and the lesser punishment here is annihilation. Whereas if it were measured against God, then it would be a greater punishment, and the greater punishment is eternal torment. And I think there's a huge assumption here that God would view eternal lack of pleasure as worse than eternal deprivation of existing in God's universe, right? Um, My point is I'm not even sure that annihilationism from the perspective of God is not a worse punishment, or at least on the same level, as eternally being punished but still getting to exist within God's creation. Uh, I guess I I see what you're saying, which is... And I'll restate it so that you understand and we understand that I understand what you're saying and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, but the, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, it, you know, that would make an assumption. What I'm saying would make an assumption that somehow annihilationism is not as bad as eternal conscious torment. Um, and I would make that argument. I would make the argument that it is not as severe. Um, mostly from the aspect that you know, we, we understand that concept and something ends, it no longer is hurting, right? There is no longer any pain there. And I do think that in many regards, it would be a worse punishment. Um, I also do think that we are not capable of, and this is, and this is a bit of a stretch. And the way I'm going to say this is going to sound not quite how I mean it, but I don't know enough other words to phrase it the way I really want to. So we'll see how long it takes me to explain it. Um, But we are capable of evil. We are like, that is, that is a fact, but only to the extent that we can deviate from God's intended path, right? That is evil. Evil is deviating from God's intended path. I I think we can agree on that as a definition of evil. Um, I hope we can. Um, Yes. But if that's the case, then we we are only capable. We don't have the power to out evil God's goodness, if that makes sense, right? Uh, that's the whole point of grace. And so, if that's the case, then you know, is our evil really being measured against ourselves? Um, is it being measured against just in the grand scheme of things? Is God grading on a curve? Or is God grading against his own holiness? And we would have to agree that the standard he's using is his holiness. And if that's the case, then you would have to, you know, if the punishment, quote unquote, is going to fit the crime, his infinite holiness would require an infinite. And I know I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying is that death is an infinite solution, but it is in many ways a finite solution, if that makes sense. I, I do hear you. A couple of a couple of points on that. Number one, again, uh, to your point, you you sort of made the same argument. There is a a reasonable hesitation if an argument doesn't come up for a long time after the Bible was written, and this argument you're making, no one thought of for a thousand years after the fact. At least we have no record of it, and so it doesn't seem to be as obvious from from the text and from biblical principles as we think it is today. It just became really popular through the spreading of Catholicism in the 11th century and onward. Um, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you right there, because it's funny that you mentioned that, because I did not read any Catholic philosophy from the 11th century to come to that conclusion. I know, matter, it's when something you said that's that, taught in Protestant churches today. <laughs> no, I've never have had that taught to me. 
that that's something that I had to learn on my own. And that's why it's so odd to me that you, you, you mentioned that because I was like, I don't ever remember. Like, I always remember it was like, you're bad because you sinned. That was what I always remember growing up. And, and I'm, I will admit that I'm a recovering legalist. Right. But well, yeah, you're part of the church of Christ. Right. Exactly. But there, it was, I was always taught you're bad because you messed up and you, and it's true. I messed up. I, I, I did the wrong thing, but I think we've put, especially in Protestantism and in Catholicism as well, the emphasis on us that we have the ability. We, it's almost narcissistic. We have the ability to commit so much evil that, uh, you know, it takes the force of God to overcome that evil. When in actuality, it's that we have strayed from God and we have violated his holiness that's the that's the thing that takes God to overcome. The, the only thing God is overcoming is how far we have strayed from him and how we have violated his holiness. And I think that that's very deviant from the traditional view in Protestant churches. And so, I mean, I'm sure you could make the argument that, yes, this is a very prolific teaching and all this. But I don't I think that that is something that can be assumed if just reading through Scripture. Um, it, it it sounds to me like this is getting into a lot of the idea of different theories of atonement. So penal substitutionary atonement, which was, which was mentioned in the debate, um, Christus Victor, where Christ came, conquered death, beat Satan, all that stuff, and then um, freed captives, where like we were slaves to sin and Jesus came and set us free. And all three of them, of course, like have merits and have bits of truth in them but they're all of course images so at a certain level they're never going to fully encompass what atonement is and what it means right you know? anyway so one point i wanted to make though is the bible says and this is an unpopular view we've heard over and over you know all sin is equal that's something i've heard over and over in churches even though it's not in the Bible explicitly, James says that if you're guilty of one point in the law, you're guilty of all of it, and that's where people get this old idea. But I would push back on this idea that all sin is equal, which I think you're almost implying by saying all sin is infinite, unless you're trying to get into the idea of like different sizes of infinite sin, like calculus stuff, <laughs> which I don't think is where the Bible is going. In yeah. any event, I, the Bible says over and over and over that X's sin was great, or he had the greater sin. There's comparison, comparisons between sizes of sin, which indicate to me that yes, there's, there is this idea. The, the core of what is wrong is that you have violated God's ways. But I think it is actually possible for one person to walk further from it than another, which again, I don't think I'm in the majority in thinking that, but I do think that when the Bible uses comparative terms to describe sin several times, that we need an explanation for it. And I haven't found any, no, I, any that's compelling except for the fact, the idea that there are different levels of sin, which would imply that it's not all infinite in the sense that you're, you seem to be saying. I, I completely agree with you. I think that the point that James is making, because we have to keep in mind that James was the leader of the Church of Jerusalem. So this was a bunch of people that were very used to the law, and still a lot of them were trying to find their righteousness and sometimes even their atonement through the law post-Christ, whenever they should be finding their atonement and their righteousness through faith and through grace and through Christ. So I think that's more what he was addressing in that point, is you can't rely on the law for your righteousness because you're never going to be able to fully keep the law. And so I think it's a slightly separate conversation and I do agree that we take that out of context, but to me, the idea, yeah, of course there's different levels of sin. Like if I cheat on a test or if I lie to somebody, that's not going to be viewed as, as big of a sin as if I murder somebody, right? But the, I think to Jordan's point, our sin at a certain level is finite. One finite might be greater than another finite, but whenever you pair it up against an infinite God, it doesn't matter because he's always right there. So as soon as you turn around, he's willing to take you back. His grace is bigger than anything you've done. So whenever we say all sins are equal to me, that's more of a fact that we're looking at sin from a punishment standpoint, which I think is just intrinsically the wrong way to look at sin. We shouldn't be saying, oh man, how bad am I going to get punished here? It's more about how can I get back to God? But yeah, when we look at it from a punishment standpoint, if and the end result is always the same thing because God's way bigger than we are, then it's going to appear that all sins are equal. But when you start looking at it from a, I want to keep God's word in order to please God, suddenly those levels do start to matter a lot more. I, I absolutely agree. My my point wasn't in contrast with any of that. It, it was just in to contradict the, the idea that all sin has an inherently maxed out value and it's all infinite and you have to, you know, the reason we suffer forever is because all the sin is the same. 
um, that that was the point I was I was going against. I feel um, like this is the place where I should be saying something, like making a counter argument. It's it's really hard because the way it also you... is a little overly philosophical, ph- philosophical, philosophical. Because yeah. at a certain point, it just comes. It it's almost gets to the point where you're defining, you're making assumptions in the philosophical argument that are hard to untangle from the beginning. <laughs> well, to an extent, yes, but to an extent, you know, like what it, you have to get into the nature of what is sin. You know, what why is sin bad? And if if sin is bad because you know it, I'm producing something evil, then that's great and all, but like, I'm not going, again, I'm not going to out evil God. Right. Um, and, and I don't think that's the nature of sin. And I don't think it's, I don't think any of us think that's the nature of sin. Right. But the other side of that, and as Chase pointed out is in the redemptive side of things is that because I can't evil God, his grace is always going to be enough to over overcome whatever evil I have and is going to be able to reconcile. Um, but this comes not out of, how badly I sinned, right? Because I'm not going to heaven because I sinned less than everybody else. No, of course right? not. Um, for the same reason, people don't go to hell because they sinned more than everybody else. Of course. Um, and so the the issue becomes there is there is no reconciliation, right? Um, because that and that that's what I guess what I'm getting to is us as people cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Uh, and while we may violate the holiness of God, there is an opportunity to reconcile that, that people who go to hell don't take. That's actually a wonderful segue to something I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I can see um, where this is going. <laughs> so you didn't mention revelation 14 and I was shocked. Did I not? Did I not? Not to my recollection. I sure didn't. I didn't have it in my notes. Sorry. Um, I, I, no, you're good. I actually, I had it in my notes. I didn't have it in the notes that I read to you. So, okay. There we go. Um, so revelation 14, 11, we'll, we'll go into it in just a second, but um, a lo- actually, okay. So let me phrase it this way. Let me just ask you what, what, what was the reason why you didn't mention Revelation 14, because it it could have been several things. It could be that you don't think this is talking about the eternal state. It could be that you're persuaded by the argument that, you know, Edom's imagery with the smoke going up forever indicates that this is final, and so you didn't want to go down that road. There's dozens of reasons you could have very reasonably not mentioned it, but which one, where are you on it? I I think that, so it's in my notes. It's it's one that I had considered talking about, um, but you kind of address the point about the verse in Daniel as well as what's quoted from Daniel by Jesus. Um, and I think that's it, that you kind of made the point already. Um, like I wasn't going to make an argument about that, that you, that you were not already, that you've not already made at that point. Okay. The, the verse, the verse in question, by the way. Um, uh, and, and then, and, I'm going to read out the New English translation, but uh, the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever, and those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night, along with anyone who receives the mark of his name. Um, which is a really solid foundational verse for the ECT argument. Um, I felt like it's one of those things where it was like, if I go there, is that too obvious? Is if I I feel like I would be walking into a trap, right? Because I was like, he's he's going to have a conversation about that, which I'm assuming we're about to have. Um, yes, <laughs> but I do think it is. It does make a very solid point because this, you know, we talked about in the other verses in in chapter twenty and things like that, where Satan and Beast and uh, Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, yes. um, and it says that they they are tortured day and night forever and ever. But in this particular verse, we're not just told that those individuals were tortured forever and ever, but ju- all those who, quote, receive the mark of his name. And so I think, yeah, and, you know, it's, it is worth bringing up that verse. I am curious to hear uh, the argument that we inevitably never got from the debate because I never brought it up. Yeah, so there's there's a few things about this verse. So first off... Um, I think it's important just to note that, again, this is an image that John's seeing. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be taken seriously. It absolutely should be. But I would say the majority of the time when you're reading imagery from a, from a prophet, 
they're seeing an image that is symbolic of a real thing rather than seeing the real thing itself. There's a thing that's being symbolized. And so that's not to say, you know, if it's, if it, if the thing in the symbol is eternal torments, which I think that actually is what John's seeing in the symbol, then it's very reasonable to say, okay, then the actual thing probably is eternal torment. I'm not discounting that. But my point is there still is an interpretive step and that's where the argument is. And that's why I wouldn't just read this and be like, oh, John saw it. There you go. <laughs> the reason why I don't think that's as persuasive of an argument is because first off, again, just to defend the fact this is symbolic, it talks about day or night, Revelation 22, there will be no more day and night. That doesn't seem to read consistently on top of everything else in the book of Revelation that implies here that John's seeing a vision. But for this specific vision, in the previous verse, verse 10, it talks about them being, being tormented with burning sulfur and the presence of the holy angels and the lamb, which most uh, most readings of this will equate that to Sodom and Gomorrah, say this is imagery borrowed from Sodom, which goes back to the same old argument of, well, what happened to Sodom, That if that's the imagery being called on it. And then, more importantly, for verse 11 itself, this image of the smoke rising forever and ever is given in two other places in scripture. Uh, the first time it's used is Isaiah 34, 9 through 10, where it says, And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. And so the thing that smoke is going up forever, the first time it's used, is the nation of Edom, which we actually had a funny conversation before the debate. I asked Jordan, I said, hey, what happened to Edom? And he said, oh, it was destroyed. And then he paused and said, it was utterly destroyed. <laughs> which I wasn't going to pull that out in the debate because I thought that would not be fair. But in the right. afterward discussion, I'm absolutely going to pull that out. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's fine. But, uh, and, but, and I kind of... I'll admit that I actually knew exactly where you were going with that. And I still said yeah. it because like in the semantics of it, like I understand where you're coming from in that perspective, but ultimately like, yes, we have the, we have time and time again, where all of these things in scripture, there is something that occurs and there's a prophetic nature to what occurs, but it's a foreshadowing of something that happens eternally. For example, Wait, wait, wait. Um, can I can I say the other of the two places this shows up? Sure, because it's in Revelation, which makes it feel very much one to one. Um, oh, yeah. I know, I know what you're talking about too. So, so in Revelation eighteen twenty one, <laughs> the angel interprets the vision and says, "So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more." So you have this image of the 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 whore of Babylon, this great harlot, who's being tormented in John's vision, seemingly forever. And then the angel interprets the vision and says, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And then in response to hearing the angel say that the city is going to be gone, found no more, not exist, the great multitude responds in 19.3, uh, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And so it really reads like the great multitude understood that when the angel says, hey, it's gone forever, we should respond, oh, the smoke goes up forever, because it was a well, a well-known phrase of the time that smoke going up forever it, it, it's actually kind of intuitive when you think about it smoke goes up when a thing's destroyed and so if the smoke goes up forever then that's symbolic of the thing not existing forever uh i i i can uh, agree with certain sentiments of that um i do think that though it doesn't a lot of your arguments come down to ah it says this and that must be exclusively this or it could be exclusively this and I think it's really hard to read anything in scripture as exclusively anything, right? Um, there are times where that does happen, don't get me wrong. But especially when you're talking about, as you mentioned, prophetic language, um, I don't think that you can ever nail it down to, well, you know, this happened to Babylon, this happened to Edom, and this happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and these are in no way prophetic or foreshadowing of an eternal uh, nature of God uh, or some other larger nature of God. For example, his reconciliation or his uh, deliverance. Um, he saved the people of Israel. Um, and I would argue that his salvation for the people of Israel, his deliverance was in many ways eternal, right? Um, in that his he made a covenant and that covenant was meant to last. I would argue that the covenant is, is still indoors and that's the covenant that we offer sanctification from Paul points that out in Romans, but, um, and in Galatians as well. But I guess my point is 
there is a certain extent to which, yes, there are some things that happen and that shows a nature of God in the physical sense where we can observe it. Um, but there is an eternal nature of God that is unobserved. And I suppose that's really where I, I have difficulty with things in this argument is because I feel like a lot of it is, well, we, you know, we, a lot of the arguments are based on uh, a lot of phrases and some phraseology that is meant to explain things in the observable world that take place in the unobserved eternal realm. And that makes this argument very difficult because now you're saying, okay, well, look, all of these things that he's talking about, all the examples he has, they all had a finite ending. Well, yes, because we live in a finite world, right? Uh, there's no, there isn't going to be an example of something that lasts forever. And that's the difficulty. Right. So th my trouble is if you're coming at this from more of a, from my view, more of just a textual perspective, more so than a philosophical one. Ouch. If, well, I, I didn't mean that as a, as a ding. It, it sounded to me like that was the difference between the arguments, and perhaps it's a, rooted at my own bias. But it, it seems that, you know, when Peter, for example, explains why it's an example, he doesn't say, you know, this is an example because we needed something that was, you know, you could see and it's, you know, very temporal, but you get the idea there's going to be a bigger, more perfect image later. He doesn't use that language. Instead, he says they're it's an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly because they were reduced to ashes and condemned to extinction, which that seems somewhat straightforward to me. Um, but how could he, no... but I'm just trying to figure out how would he phrase that they like the way you are, he would say, just as you know, that there is an, a for image that is temporary and an after image that is eternal. The same thing is going to happen in terms of, in terms of the loss. Like, just like we have this like and, and the other thing about this, this just kind of goes back to the, to the previous discussion we were having about, you know, a, a permanent sin that I wanted to come back to with Revelation 14, you know, this idea that God has to punish it eternally. It says in Revelation 14 that this is all happening in the presence of the Lamb. Where is that verse? I'm missing exactly where it is. It's in the chapter. Oh, um, it's in 10, at the end of 10. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured, in full, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the trumpet shall goes up, goes up forever. Yeah, yep. so that's 14.10. And so it seems counterintuitive to me. You, you said in cross-examination that you thought God would rid his creation of evil, and it seems at least this scene is happening in the presence of the Lamb. That seems surprising to me if we're interpreting it as a thing that goes on forever. Like, if you want to go hang out with Jesus in eternity, you have to go sit down and watch him watch people get tortured. That, it just seems counterintuitive. I don't know that that's... Well, okay, again. This is a verse that is meant to be interpretive. Like, it's, it is meant to be imagery, and we know that. I'll offer um, a very different perspective in a moment when you finish. I, I do like... I'm, I'm curious to hear where Jace, take, Jace takes this, but... To your point, Judgment Day is going to happen, and it's going to happen in the presence of the Lord. Um, I don't think that just because it's happening, it's being observed, you know, infinitely. Um, quite opposite, as a matter of fact. I believe that because it has happened, it it is, you know, God is going to commit that, and his presence will be removed from it. Um, that is actually the worst part of it, I think. And so... I don't know. I just think there is a lot to be said about this. And also don't depends on how you interpret this particular section of revelation as well as being e the eternal nature of hell or being, if you take a more historical approach, which I don't, um, you could argue that this is actually just a historical event that he's talking about, but um, I wouldn't make that argument, but one could, but I, I guess my point is depending on how you interpret this, you, this may not be talking at all about the nature of hell. Um, anyway, Jason, I'm curious. What are you, what One could indeed. I tend to take the view of prophecies that every prophet, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, they're speaking images of their current time to the audience that is there so that they can understand it. I think that the book of Revelation, for the most part, is written to encourage churches that are undergoing a very heavy persecution. Um, this passage in particular... We get these three angels, right? Um, so 
with the second one, Fallen, Fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. In the current, the audience that first heard this, that's Rome. That's what they hear. No question whatsoever. That is what the first audience heard whenever they heard that. And this is a proclamation of, like, Rome is going to fall, which is a huge proclamation to make during their time. And then we get to this next part. If anyone worships the beast and its image. Okay, so the temple tax, how familiar are y'all with that? Not sorry, not the temple tax. Um, the whenever they ask Jesus, like, should we pay ta um, taxes to Caesar? How familiar are you with the process of that, of what that entailed? I am very familiar with the process of paying taxes. <laughs> As am okay. I, unfortunately. So this tax in particular, what had to happen is you had to purchase a coin that had Caesar's image on it, and written on the coin was some variation of "All hail Caesar, the great and mighty." um caesar son of god caesar um all the all these different phrases that we actually see applied to jesus in the new testament a lot of them are applied to caesar on these coins which there's a theory that the things that are said in the new testament the wording is chosen specifically to be a way of saying no that you shouldn't be worshiping caesar this is who god is but that's another conversation. But they had these coins with these words on them glorifying Caesar as deity. That's very well historically recorded. And then what you would do is you would have to take this coin and you would have to go to a temple of Caesar. And you would have to offer incense and pray to Caesar and worship him. Now, whenever the Jews joined in the Roman Empire, they were given what was called the Jewish exception, which stated that because they had a pre-existing religion... Jordan, could you mute yourself real quick? I'm getting some feedback. I think it's um, or Brad. Brad. Actually. Oh, sorry, is it Brad? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. That's much better. Sorry, it was distracting me. So, yeah, the Jewish exception. Um, if you were a Jew, you could show that you were a Jew, and you would not have to pay this tax because that tax involves worshiping people. So that's why there's a big issue earlier on when they're like, "Should we pay taxes to Caesar?" And Jesus is like. Okay, you see the coin? It's Caesar's face. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God's. That's Jesus' way of saying, like, pay the tax to Caesar, but don't you dare worship him. And, like, this was an ongoing debate even before Jesus, between rabbis uh, Hillel and Shemai. They were having this conversation before Jesus was even on the field. Um, so then we get here, and if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and his hand, okay, after the destruction of the temple— and I think it started in Nero's persecution, who, by the way, recorded outside of the Bible, was often called the Beast. Um, they would actually have to receive a literal stamp saying, I have paid my tax, and you would have to show that if you wanted to make purchases in the marketplace. I think it's uh, that's that's the very common historical um, perspective on this. And I do think that there's certainly an argument to be made there about the roman historical interpretation of revelation and in this case you know this is meant to be you know is this is meant to be the destruction of speak of the destruction of rome or more even specifically yeah, no. more broadly even the destruction of those who oppress the people of god that's gonna yeah right i'll give a caveat to it is that this is written by john and that means two things well this is a prophecy written by john so two things one pretty much every prophecy that we ever see had an immediate fulfillment initially and then a greater fulfillment later on right so rome here would be the immediate fulfillment that it's very likely that there would be a greater fulfillment later on so i think you can apply it to eschatology in time stuff I do, yeah. um but all and also john was a master of double meanings when, because he was typically speaking to a very mixed audience so i don't think that you can take it and be like oh hey we found one meaning so that's the only meaning here so i'm not saying that you can't have an eschat eschatological view of this section but it's certainly not the only application and the only reason certain word choices were used I think that's my main issue with annihilationism. And one could still make the same argument about eternal conscious torment. Everywhere you, you mentioned, Brad, you mentioned how, how many verses was it? I have in my notes. You mentioned 264. Like 264. I wanted to mention, by the way, I agree with everything Jay said and everything you've said so far. So I'm curious how this disagrees with annihilationism, but go on. <laughs> I, I think that you can't exclusively read any of the, like, when you're reading through these verses, the 264 verses that you mentioned, uh, none of them conclusively, I would argue, point to annihilationism. 
um, because many of them are not exclusively defined or translated or interpreted uh, to mean to directly mean one particular event or thing. Um, you, there are some that are, and I'm not going to try to discount that, but by and large, 264 verses do not directly support annihilationism. 264 verses could support annihilationism. That could be one reading of it, um, if that was the only reading of it. But the problem is many prophetic writings don't have a singular uh, objective, exclusive interpretation. And I think that's there's really no way to conclusively argue for annihilationism based on a lot of those verses. So I... I would agree with you insofar as there's no way to argue for anything conclusively eschatologically, but I would disagree with you insofar. It, it almost sounds like what I you're saying. I will conclusively say that Christians get to go to heaven for I the suppose most part. That's, yes, but <laughs> even then you get to define, okay, what's heaven? Because there are some people who think there's soul sleep until judgment day. Some people think you go to paradise in the first place. Some people would call that paradise heaven. Some people wouldn't. Some people would say this united heaven and earth is a spiritual thing. Others have a more materialistic view of it. I have my own thoughts of, on those things, and I think, obviously, I I think the scripture points to what I think, but everyone thinks that. Um, <laughs> my point, though, is, yes, there's room for debate. I'm not denying that there's room for debate. But I do think that if you're going to pick the view that has at least what seems to me to be a more face value view for the majority of the texts, to me it seems to be that when it says die, perish, consumed, condemned to extinction, reduced to nothing, so on and so forth, it seems more natural to read that if you only had the text in front of you as meaning that they're going to die in the sense that a person is familiar with it. They're going to become inanimate. They're going to lose consciousness and not be able to experience things anymore. But I think and, my, my issue though with that particular ideology is that if we read it quote unquote at face value, we would always read it at the face value of what we understand and what, how we would initially interpret those things. And I think that our understanding of death may not align completely with the initial, off, the initial audience's understanding of death. And so when we see death, destruction, things like that, and we just think, oh, well, my understanding of death would indicate that at face value, that's what this means. But that's an assumption that our face value of death would be the same face value as the original audience. I agree, which is which is why I think you need to look at the context of those verses. And when it says, for example, fear not the one who can kill the body, and it's talking about the literal killing of the body, he's not talking about a metaphorical killing of the body. He means, you know, don't be afraid of these people trying to literally kill you, but fear the one who can kill both soul and body in hell. I, I think that's one very reasonable place to look for an explanation of what they mean by killing soul and body. It's paralleled to killing body. At least the killing body seems to be the same in both stanzas. And so one would think that if it's the same killing that's happening to the soul, it seems reasonable to think it's the same thing. And I would also just, just push back on this, this idea. It feels to me like you're saying, well, look, there may be a different definition of death going on here. And if you can point me to a, to a passage that says that explicitly, then I'm, I'm here for it. But most of the passages that seem to be defining this seem to read in the context of actually dying. Like, for example, again, talking about being... Um, God ridding his his creation of evil, like you talked about. You're either saying that they stop existing, which I don't think is what you're saying, or you're saying that creation has to be defined such that part of creation is not part of what exists is no longer in creation. Which that seems mind-bendingly jumping through at like linguistic hoops to get to that point to me. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think it's jumping through that many hoops myself. But that's just my personal opinion on it. I think I could probably talk more about that. No, I'm you're not, fine. I'm not trying to be too critical. I, no, I, I think that's the point, though, isn't it? To be critical. But I, to, more to your point, um, I think I'll probably save that discussion for Jason and I's debate over Genesis 1 through 11. Ooh, but, oh, boy. Because I think that falls into the realm of functional ontology. Um, and, and I think that's where that conversation... That's a fair point right there. Um, my question is, you're talking about we need to put it in context. So consistently throughout the bible we see that the hebrew people the israelites jewish people whatever they're called at any given point um define a lot of their 
ideas about the universe and about existence in terms of similar ideas to other cultures around them. And my understanding of the Greek culture, and I could be totally wrong here, I thought that in Greek mythology, which for the most part is the surrounding culture around them, Hellenism, is that when people died, they would either go to like the fields of Elysium or they would go to Hades where they would like continue in existence or there was some like middle ground area. I don't even remember what that one was called, but I thought that for Greek mythology, at least there was some idea of continuation of existence. Now caveat being a lot of that probably is informed by Plato and his teachings and those earlier Greek philosophers, but it does seem strange to me like, if the Greeks had a completely different idea and understanding of what happened after you died, especially like in terms of what happens to the lost, than the Hebrew people did, when there's all these arguments between the Essenes and the Hellenists and the Herodians and the, um, um, the Sadducees, Sadducees, Pharisees, yeah. Zealots, yeah. like if everybody's arguing about all this stuff, and they do have a lot of eschatological arguments, like two-part versus three-part, mm-hmm. why do they never seem to address, at least in scriptures or writings that I'm aware of, um, this difference between them and the culture around them? Because I'd imagine that the Herodians especially would have had a lot of their views of the afterlife influenced by the Greeks because they su- subscribed so heavily to Hellenism. I think you're right, and I think that... I think they do. Go on. Yeah, no, I, and oh, I, I agree with that. I agree, Brad, that they, they do. Um, and one of, the, one of the arguments that annihilationists often make about ECT is that, well, that, was just, that viewpoint was formed out of a Hellenistic view of, of the soul and is formed out of Plato's view of, of the soul. And to some extent, you may, that, that may be a relevant argument, that that's how they formed their view. Um, and that distinction is never, we, that, that distinction is never drawn. And for, again, reasons we can talk about in depth later, that it's, God is not going to sit down and write us a book on eschatology. I mean, there's, there's yeah. no way we'd ever understand it. And so we just kind of have to ascribe what we know to what we currently understand. And a lot of times I think that that was the case, um, why they started applying so many views from Hellenism into their eschatology, mostly because there were so many gaps to fill. Um, and, and there really wasn't much specificity in, in that. Um, I do think it's interesting though, because while there are like, I'm not saying this stuff doesn't matter and that this stuff is relevant because I think very clearly there were certain ideologies in the day when Jesus was around that he immediately dismissed um, and very, very strongly dismissed. For yeah, example, one of the Sadducees. <laughs> one of his first, and one of his first ministry things was dismissing two-part eschatology and preaching three-part eschatology instead. Right. Well, and it, like, what does he say to um, what does he say to Mary and Martha? Uh, you know, Mary and Martha clearly believed in the resurrection. Sadducees obviously taught that that wasn't a thing. Um, but Jesus establishes that there is a resurrection, and not only does he establish that there is one, that he is the resurrection. He even says that. And so, mm-hmm. when Paul is brought before the teachers of the law, he decides, you know what? I'm going to talk about <laughs> That's the such thing. A funny moment. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the thing that I know me and Jesus agree on, which is the resurrection. It's a big part of what he was taught as a Pharisee, but it's also part of what he understands about Christ, because the resurrection is Christ. Um, but I guess, but to my to the point though, those views on eschatology. Some of them were wrong, but that wasn't the big problem. The big problem was not that their eschatology was wrong. It's that their functional theology was wrong. Um, And one would argue maybe one could affect the other. But ultimately, uh, this argument about annihilationism versus uh, eternal conscious torment comes down to the fact that we can both agree that there is a hell and nobody should want to go there, but there will be people and they will go there. Um, I think that that's really what, what this particular debate comes to. When you remove the universalist argument from this particular debate, I think ultimately one thing that we have to agree on is yes, hell is bad. Um, as Brad pointed out, you, you could make a whole argument or you could have a whole debate rather on whether or not annihilationism or C- ECT is worse and and truthfully that's that's a fair point because i think that you could you could slide that scale either way and make points on around both of them 
about what hell is. Um, but what we can agree on is hell is bad. And we know, we know enough about hell, which is we don't want to go there. And we know who goes there. And that's really where we as Christians or those who want to talk about theology uh, really need to focus is uh, we can talk all day about what hell is or is not. Uh, ultimately, though, we have to talk about why we don't want to go there, or more specifically, why we want to go to heaven, um, which is the alternative. I, I personally believe that it's more important for us to want to go to heaven than it is to not want to go to hell. But Absolutely. Uh, uh, I think that that's where this debate really has to fall is we're going to agree to disagree on this. Um, but what we can agree on is the need for us to seek out God and to seek to live with him eternally and to have what is an eternal life. And there's no debate on that, that our life with God would be eternal. Yeah. I wonder if so much of it was just never addressed simply, well, never directly and explicitly addressed simply for the fact that it's not the point in the end, like you're saying, is that, you know, that's not what motivates us in the, at the end of the day. So if you're reading these, if you're reading this book and accepting the message in the first place, then, well, hopefully this doesn't apply to you anyways. (laughs) And also because I don't think that we should ever be driving our evangelism by fear, which mm. there's definitely been a history, especially in you know what recent in the decades. What the 1960s of... evangelism? <laughs> evangelicalism? What? what are you talking about? Anyway. You mean that we're trying to threaten people into being Christians? That's definitely what Jesus wanted, right? It's a good thing no one ever did that in ancient times. <laughs> no, never. Or still does it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with you that we shouldn't use it as a tool for evangelism, but at the same time, Jesus talked about it more than anyone else did, and I think that it's it's a fair warning. Um, in fact, I would argue it would be unfair not to provide the warning. But oh yeah, uh, uh, saying that while agreeing with you, I think it it has been very much overused. And if you're uh, using it as any more than sort of a one time warning, then at that point you are most likely overusing it. Um, but now, admittedly, back, I th- oh, go ahead. I was just going to back up to to your previous point you had made about um, you know why isn't this more talked about. Uh, in those writings, you know, if there was a disagreement. Um, I wanted to point out a couple of things with that in conjunction with, I had made a comment about the Sadducees and Essenes, and I felt a little bit like, by virtue of the fact that I glossed over it, um, the wrong impression was given off. I wasn't saying, you know, well, the Sadducees said it, so it's right. I, I was saying instead that there were different views on the afterlife. It seems the Sadducees believed, as we know, that there was no resurrection. From what I've read, it seems, and in fairness, I don't have these writings in front of me, so I can't back this up right now, but I've been told that the Essenes believed that in a resurrection followed by an annihilation. Um, we have in the Gemara, in uh, Shabbat 33b, it says the judgment of the wicked in Gehenna lasts for 12 months, which that was, as far as I'm aware, a view of the Pharisees at the time, that people would be in Gehenna for 12 months and then stop existing. Um, which all of this is, you know, groups that agreed with the resurrection. So I'm not saying that because any of them are right. I'm just saying there were these ideas circling. And then to more directly to Jace's point about people sort of arguing about this during that time, uh, in 330 at least, Arnobius of Sicca was talking about Plato, and he says, what, what, what does your Plato also in the book which he wrote on the immortality of the soul name the rivers Acheron, Styx, Cossetus, and I'm not going to try to pronounce that, uh, okay, well, Pyriflegathon, and assert that in them souls are rolled along, engulfed, and burned up. And then he makes this counter argument, but what man does not see that, that that which is immortal, which is simple, cannot be subject to any pain, that that, on the contrary, cannot be immortal, which does, which does suffer pain. So Arnobius had this idea that was popular at the time in sort of the annihilationist church fathers, those that were, George would argue, a minority, which is, you know, six of one, half a dozen the other, will push that debate down the road, but at least Arnobius was arguing that if a person was immortal, then they couldn't experience pain. So how could you possibly have immortal people in hell that are suffering? Which is not an argument that makes sense to us today, but at least in his mind, it made sense that if a person's immortal, then they can't have pain. Well, and he, he ties that back I'm directly sorry, to Plato. What in the crucifixion is he talking about? Um, well, he Christ's body wasn't immortal, though. <laughs> Ah, oh, but that, all right, that's a whole other debate. I'm not going to get into it right now, because uh, you're right. His body was not immortal, but he was. And so, yes, yeah, you, you get the point. Anyway, uh, and that goes into as well, because if we're going to talk about Revelation, um, the Nicolaitans, 
that falls into their category of arguments as well. But we won't get into that tonight because there's yeah, absolutely that can be another conversation altogether. There's absolutely no way we're going to cover all that tonight. And I think we have. I think we. I think our discussion has been rather thorough. I think we've we've fairly well. Uh, I'm not going to say we're we're ever going to conclusively. Uh, well, sure, exhaustively we one day. cover this topic. Um, we'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Um, yeah, you think we'll get there? All right, just just give it a week. I'm sure. And give it a week. Yeah. We'll iron oh, everything out. Just meant once we died. Yeah, no, that's all right. <laughs> well, I do. Um, I do want to real quick. Um, before we get into the conclusion, let's discuss what our next move is. I believe what's on docket is that Jason and I are going to debate Genesis one or gen- the first portion of Genesis. Is Before that something we discuss that, the can I do? Can I do one more one more piece that I really wanted to cover, just briefly? Sure. Okay, so I just wanted to point out an area that could be very confusing to someone who didn't hadn't maybe studied this, which is, and I'll just let Jordan explain it if he wants to. Jordan, if someone's listening to all this and they're saying, "Well, look, I, I know about heaven and hell, but y'all are talking about all these other places. Like I heard you talk about Hades, and isn't that like a Greek god? And there's Gehenna, and you Don't know, forget so, Tartarus and Second yeah, Peter. I was going to bring up this Tartarus. This chase yeah. guy is bringing up Tartarus. Like, <laughs> what are we talking about? What are all these places? And, uh, I think Brad mentioned Paradise or Abraham's bosom or something. What's going on? <laughs> so, Jordan, could you uh, just give sort of a brief overview of why, in my view? Not all of those places would be relevant to the discussion of what happens in eternity, but some of them would be. I think we addressed this slightly earlier when we talked about the fact that several, in several occasions, eschatology was affected by the views of the day. And I think that that's fair. Several of these places, Brad, mute yourself. Um, several of these places that are mentioned, some of them, I think, have a real spiritual implication i think they may in fact be real i i have a hard time with the tartarus thing because i feel like that came from some kind of uh, external mythology but i also feel like there's relevance that it could be a real place i don't know but the point is some of these some of these places are born out of contemporary mythology that is adapted um to try to make sense of eschatology or what cannot be seen or understood and so for example, Hades, the word Hades comes up in the book of Revelation, right? And we're told that Hades is thrown into Hades and death and yeah, death and Hades, which I, it's funny because it seems like the same. Uh, but the, the idea being that death and everything that comes with it, uh, you know, is thrown in. But that is because the understanding of the time was based in this mythology of of the afterlife and uh, where does the soul go and all this and kind of wrapped up in that little bit of Hellenism as well. Um, But that's not the only case. And I do think that to Brad's point, I think that there are several other cultural elements that believed in annihilationism that influenced maybe some of the linguistics and some of even the eschatology of certain individuals in some of these periods that led some of the phrases and some of the way that they were worded to sound in, in many ways, and maybe even coming from a place of uh, annihilations. Um, not to say that one is necessarily a correct view over another view, but I am saying that almost all of these are instances, these places, quote unquote, uh, are places that are born from trying to connect the dots based on the pieces that we have. And some of those pieces coming from trying to fill in the gaps with our cultural understanding. And so, um, which is interesting because when you get into a Western cultural understanding of eschatology, uh, that gets really fuzzy because we only like material pieces to try to fit into a not material puzzle. And that can get really stringent. But uh, anyway, to, to your point, Brad, yes, there are plenty of places that are mentioned or these ideas of death or what happens after life that come up. And then there are seemingly other conflicting, not maybe, maybe conflicting, maybe you could say it's not conflicting, um, views of the afterlife that are presented or used as, or referenced. Um, and those are usually born out of, you know, a cultural understanding. 
Yes, and if I can add just just one thing to that one one way that this is understood by some people, and, and I would hold this view, but I'm sure not everyone does, um, is that when when Hades or Sheol are refer, are referred to, uh, that refers to the grave, which may be literally just the ground, or it may be an actual conscious place where the soul is, um, you know, until Judgment Day, and then post Judgment Day, you know, when Hades is cast into this lake of fire, um, that's sort of the transitioning into. Gehenna, Lake of Fire, Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which is more of the permanent final place. Um, so you sort of have a, have a pre-Judgment Day destination followed by a post-Judgment Day desti- destination. And that's by no means something that everyone agrees on, but I do think that is... Jordan, correct me if you disagree. I'd say probably the majority view within Protestant circles. Um, I would say but, it's not even just the view within Protestant circles. I would say... And that Catholic m- as well, yes. I would say most Orthodox views, even pre- I mean, within Judaism, pre-Jesus, that is uh, that is a, a fairly predominant view, right? Which is which is why I think neither one of us brought up Luke chapter sixteen, which is the scene with Lazarus and the rich man and right. the rich man suffering, because that takes place in Hades, and so it wouldn't be as applicable to the uh, the final state post Judgment Day right. of the lost. I don't know. I think I want to take the parable literally and take the very literal parts of. This. All right, so I think that about wraps up our discussion over this. Um, We would always appreciate questions, comments, further discussion. There's lots of good resources out there. I think in the debate, and we're probably going to repost them here, all the materials that both Brad and Jordan used for coming to their conclusions and researching this. And there, like I said, are so many more resources out there, probably resources that are even better than the ones that are going to be listed. So go do your own digging, go find it, start up discussions with other people. Um, Like I said at the intro in the first one, when we make space for God, he's going to fill it. And I think that one of the key ways that God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit is through his scriptures and through the community of Christ in the church. So dig into the word, talk about it with other Christians, and I think you're going to find a lot more truth than you ever thought was going to be out there.